I reckon that's such an interesting segue though in terms of like managerial skills because it's actually like a little bit of personal anecdote as well. I told you about the student publication Mm -hmm. that I founded. I wasn't very social when I was younger and I was very much kept to myself. I hated like human interaction so much that I actually got my best friend to do all the managerial work for <laughs> that student publication. Yeah. And he just did it because we were best friends and we're still like really good friends today. We're still like basically best friends today. However, one day we got really drunk and then he missed a deadline. And then I got really mad at him for missing a deadline. He was like, I don't work for you. I quit. And I was like, oh, crap. Looks like I need to learn how to do management myself then. So then overnight, I was literally forced into a situation where I had to learn how to manage people and learn how to incentivize people, learn how to manage a team. And I don't think I would have been able to scale StoryPress's team if I didn't have that first crash course, kind of like making all these mistakes. This is Startup Island Taiwan, the channel all about cutting-edge technology, influential global tech layers, and Taiwan. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John from the Asianometry YouTube channel. I'm your guest host today, and I'm here with Alex Pan, co-founder of StoryPress. Alex, welcome to the show. Lovely having you here. So like really excited to actually talk about this company because you work in content teams. So like anytime we talk about content, you know, it catches my eye. Can you introduce StoryPress for our viewers? What do you guys do? What is your mission here? Yeah, definitely. What we do is actually like pretty simple. Creating content at scale, especially high quality, in-depth content. We're starting off with like written content, like blog posts, really, really time intensive and often requires an entire team to collaborate to create that kind of piece of work. There's great workflow tools out there for things like code, GitHub. There's great workflow tools for stuff, stuff like, I don't know, Asana, which is more kind of like enterprise planning, which is more kind of like um, kind of ad hoc work. There's no kind of workflow platform specifically geared for content. And that's what StoryPress is. The reason why we do it effectively is because content's kind of like going through a renaissance, as we've seen like Substack, Beehive, Medium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's very differing views on what this content vision should be. Are we going the creator economy route? Are we going the podcast route? Are we going the video route? Who the hell knows? And StoryPress, we think that media is slowly trending towards B2B media and then highly niche, highly, highly in-depth kind of media. That's what it's trending towards. And we're kind of building tools for creators and creators teams to kind of scale that. And yeah, that's what we do. It's actually kind of challenging because, you know, I'm a creator myself and I work by myself and I've tried to bring people on as like a team and it's very challenging. Like what's your product philosophy towards that? Yeah, so we kind of only focus on written news right now. So like articles, journalism, that kind of stuff. Um, Our philosophy behind that is when you start off creating like an article, you start off in a platform like Google Docs, and then your editor probably manages your workflow in a platform like Trello. And then that writer has to remember to paste that Google Docs link into Trello. And then on every kind of revision, he maybe paste another link. Sometimes they forget. It's very, very hard to audit the workflow of that kind of system. Secondly, is that the writer is often using a myriad of tools. So for example, they need things like YouTube embeds. They need things like Getty Images. They need things like Unsplash. They might even be using AI copywriters like Jasper. Heaps of context switching between all of the different tools under your tool belt as a writer. StoryPress kind of combines all of these kind of features into one platform. So that first, updating workflow state, like for example, I don't have to paste my Google Docs link into the Trello board. It's done automatically because everything's under one platform. And then secondly, things like Getty Images, Embeds, AI Writers, 
article strategization, content calendars are all built into the platform. So just have the entire team use one set of tools, one single platform to collaborate better together. How does StoryPress come about? Like what inspired you and your team to start? Like what's the beginning? I've always been weirdly obsessed about media. And um, why was that the case? Is because the MD of a big ad agency called Saatchi and Saatchi came over to my high school and he gave us a whole presentation being like, hey, this is what we do at Saatchi and Saatchi. Ads are really cool. Look at this Hyundai ad I made. And I was like eight years old at the time. I saw that presentation. And I was like, I'm sold. From that moment on, I was like, I want to work in media. I want to work in advertising. So when I was 16, I got kicked out of a lot of high schools, but my grades were also really good. So I was a naughty kid, but my grades were really good. And at 16, I had done the SATs because I wanted to study abroad in the US. And I finished my SATs. And then a really, I guess, precipitous event also happened. That was I got expelled from high school. And just for being naughty, um, like speaking out in class, chatting in class, expelled from high school. And I was like, crap, what do I do now? I love one thing, that being media. I probably could have gone to a really good university, but I just got expelled. And I was like researching all these different routes I could have. I didn't want to go like community college because I don't know, like sound boring. And I encountered this university called Macquarie University in Australia. And they had a mature age student program where if you're like 45 or 50 years old and you hadn't graduated high school, you could give them your SAT scores and they'd give you a high school mark and they'd let you in. Now, obviously, I'm like 16, and I wasn't 50 at the time. And I was like, well, they didn't like specify an age range. And I'd already done my SATs like a month before getting expelled. <laughs> I might as well just give them my SATs. I gave them my SATs, and they didn't check my age, and they let me in. Wow. So I went into university, studied media at 16 or 17. And in a very weird kind of way, getting expelled was the best, I guess, decision I've ever done because <laughs> I didn't have to do high school and I could go straight to university and studied what I actually liked at an actually pretty good university. So I loved my first year at university. I, like, I loved it so much. I thought it was amazing. Media was awesome. But there was one big problem. And that was media doesn't earn any money. And I was a very ambitious kid, you know? I wanted to earn money. I didn't want to graduate with a $30,000 a year job. I was like, screw that. I'm going to do what any other kid with good grades does and transfer into law. So I transferred into the 12th best law school in the world. And then I think within two months, I realized that I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> Have you seen the movie, the TV show, Arrested Development? Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Mistake. It's like, I've made a huge mistake. Like, yeah. law is so bloody boring. <laughs> it is literally the most mind-boggling, boring subject anyone could ever choose, like, in the world. And you know me, it's like I was a naughty kid. I'd get really obsessed about the things I'd like, but if I couldn't get interested in it, I was a really bad student. And you know, when you do something you really hate, you gravitate back to what you love. And what I loved was the media. So I started a political student newspaper. Yeah. And I grew that to one of the biggest student newspapers in Australia and New Zealand. And it was through that experience that I hit the pain points that I'm experiencing, that I'm kind of solving currently with StoryPress, that being content workflow is really hard to scale mm -hmm. and really hard to monetize and really hard to kind of create high quality digital presence. And that's how StoryPress came about. So I left that publication. I was like, how hard could creating software be? A person <laughs> with no software background who studies media and law. Easy. No, very bloody hard. <laughs> um, I was like, I want to go out, create software, come back to that student publication. And then uh, two months in, I was, I was like, I still don't know how to code. Obviously, <laughs> this timeline isn't going as planned. 
And um, I initially wanted to find technical people to help me. And there were no technical people who wanted to help me because I was like 22, 23 at the time. It's like, what technical person? If you're in Australia, you know to code, you're grading into like a $120,000 a year job, right? It's like, who would want to join the startup of a 22, 23-year-old who hasn't even graduated from university yet? So I was like, okay, no students want to join my startup. What else can I do? I'm going to go on LinkedIn. I'm going to hit up like the CTO of like Google and Atlassian and see if they would join my startup. And <laughs> they actually responded to my LinkedIn messages. Like really? I was like, hey, I've got a startup. I was like, we're just about to raise half a million dollars. No, we weren't. <laughs> but would you be willing to have a meeting with me? And they said, yes. So I met all these like high ups at like Google and like Atlassian. And the minute they'd see me and the minute they saw how young I was, they were like, I've made a huge mistake. And none of those meetings went well. So then I was stuck in square one. I was like, I don't have a technical co-founder. And I realized I was like, hey, my uncle, he's like a lecturer at Taida. So for the listeners, Taida is like the Harvard of um, Taiwan. He teaches testing, so software engineering. So I asked my dad, I'm like, hey, could you put me in touch with my uncle? And could he like help me on finding a technical co-founder? And he was like, yeah, for sure. So I meet him, we connect. He connects me to my co-founders now, Kevin and David. And it turns out we work really, really well together. And from then on, it's been a marriage made in heaven. Now we launch early this year. And uh, yeah, it's been a pretty crazy ride, man. How's been kind of the um, your sort of way of developing this product? Like feedback with a lot of people? Like how's this thing coming together? I feel like there's different stages to every startup. And it's going to be the same answer for any kind of startup operator. When you're just at the ideation stage, there's really no quantitative user data you can use to kind of develop the product. So all you can do is go out, do market research using qualitative data. Now, I'm lucky in that I literally did qualitative research for like two years and literally building a student newsroom. Now I just had to go out and talk to companies, talk to traditional companies, other media companies, things like B2B company to ask them if they had the same pain point. So I did talk to heaps of these companies. They all told me, hey, you shouldn't be building just for traditional media. Like if you integrated this in Webflow, if you integrated this in Shopify, if you integrated this in WordPress, like please, please, please do it. Like we'd use in a second. And I was like, awesome, sweet. So we built like an MVP and we watched our users use it, like between eight users. And then we continue to iterate the product experience. And we launched, I think, in February. We implemented what's called a CDP, which is a customer data platform, which allows us to very, very in-depth track the users of the application. And now we do a very hybrid kind of quant qual way of kind of engaging our users and seeing what we can optimize in terms of the, the business. I mean, it's a very cookie cutter response. Every single startup founder, I feel like, is going to answer that in the same way. <laughs> well, I think I like the nuances of it. Some people talk more about the users. Some people talk more about the process. And some people talk more about the product. It's always interesting to gauge the differences of how people approach like building and creating something like this. So you are building and also as a person who makes content, I've put a lot of focus not just on the content that comes out, but also how I make it. So like you think a lot about are we doing it the right way or doing a way that makes it fast. But I feel like process is like a dependency of understanding people and product. That's how I view it. It's like because and then people and product. Yes, you can be super product focused, but if you're not solving for any kind of um, user pain point, 
then who are you building for, really? You need to kind of like have understand there is no product without people and there is no people without product. And then the process kind of like is a product of what you've identified in people and product. Because let's say you work at Airbnb and Airbnb has got one of the best product management processes. They've like innovated product management leaps and bounds. But if you go to like TSMC, I would very much doubt that Airbnb's process can also be applied in TSMC. You can adapt, chop and change, like get inspiration from, but ultimately what's going to drive process in TSMC is going to be the people and the product. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, they're all interdependent. And I think that's kind of like the way to kind of best say it. The way I envision it is that, yes, they are interdependent, but there's also something about it where you can look harder at a particular thing than all the others. I think there's one thing in product that can be kind of separated off, and that's UI. Um, UX and UI, UX is kind of like very people-oriented. UI is much more kind of magical. It's like kind of traditional advertising back when there was no attribution advertising. You just, yeah. It was just very vibes-based. UI is something that you can focus on, on its own, create brand guidelines. But even then, you still need, you still need to create the brand guidelines based on kind of some level of knowledge of the user, but it's not as intrinsically tied as UX is. I guess that is one thing that can be separated. It's quasi-separated off. What were some assumptions that you had at the beginning that were kind of like dashed as you kind of... Um, One of the assumptions that I made at the beginning, like I still think this, but one of the assumptions was that advertising is the future of the web, of monetization of content. And I still believe this. However, my view on this has gone more nuanced. Because at the time, 2020, it was a very contrarian take. Everyone was saying, oh, creator economy, subscriptions, that's the future. So some like 22-year-old kid telling like a guy in media tech advertise the future, they didn't like that very much. My take on that has gotten a lot more nuanced since. Advertising requires scale to kind of deploy. Either you need a platform which aggregates that scale for the contributor, or you need a big company like, for example, News Corp to kind of throw their weight around and aggregate all this data together. Where subscriptions and paywalls fits in the overall revenue mix is that subscriptions allow you to fuel growth once you get enough scale to do advertising. So it's kind of like a ramp, sustainable ramp, once you get to that level of scale. But subscriptions very, very hard to scale into a billion-dollar business, as Elon Musk at Twitter knows very well. And this is a really nice segue, right? Why did Mark Zuckerberg create threads? He literally saw that Elon didn't understand the unit economics of advertising. And he was like, I'm going to end this man's whole career. <laughs> and let me explain why. So the average revenue per user per quarter on a user on Facebook, which is solely ad funded, is like $110, right? $110. Twitter blue, $8 a month. So it's $96 a year. Assuming a 10% conversion rate, which is actually double Twitter blue's current conversion rate, you have $8.60 a quarter. So $8.60 versus $110. Like the unit economics don't compute. Advertising is a fundamentally more efficient mode of monetization. And it's just such a weird, advertising is such a weird murky place to be in that's very, very misunderstood. That um, I don't even remember why I'm going down this conversation anymore. <laughs> but, but it's like, was press built to serve advertisers or was it like built to serve people creating advertised content or was it like was it built for like company or for like a, like a newsletter right newspaper i mean yeah. so at storypress we don't really see monetizations that way we see what is the best way to monetize a media content based company based mm-hmm. on your current company goals for example 
And to preface the answer to that with content, the answer to that, whatever kind of business model you use, it's data. And to explain further, let's say you are a company blog. You are someone like LogRocket or what's a better one? What's a like FMCG brand? Well, what's with a B2B, famous B2E brand like IBM? Massive, massive tech company. They create a lot of thought leadership in creating kind of content. Your business objective in creating content isn't to run ads or to run subscriptions. It's to run awareness. And to assess the efficacy of your content, to assess whether your content is driving more awareness leads in your funnel, you still need data. You still need analytics. Okay, now let's look at whether you're a traditional media company. Traditional media company, you're selling ads. But how can you raise the CPM of your ads to like 10x that of running something on AdWords? It's by data. You need to know who your customers are. And if you know who your customers are, then you can run crazy CPMs like 10 or 15 bucks or even higher. And then there's another one, like for example, e-commerce stores. Um, You need to know whether people are hitting that piece of content you're creating and then directly converting to your store. All of these things rely on data to prove out. So the philosophy with StoryPress is that what if we built a workflow management solution, not as a workflow management solution first, but as a data platform first, and then build a workflow solution on top of that. And then that allows us to do really cool, build really cool features for whatever kind of user you building content, scaling content, StoryPress. And then we can help them further with their business objectives, that being aware, better aware, like better understanding of how content fits in their awareness funnel or better advertising CPMs if you're a traditional publisher. All depends on the data. So you talked about like it's like a Shopify, right? So like does this mean that let's narrow it down to the use case. So let's say it's like a blogging platform. Like you're using that to create content that you want to be widely distributed. So what StoryPress has helped doing is help people understand who's actually reading these posts, who's reading these, this content. Yes, 100%, that's what we do. But we see kind of StoryPress in a three-pronged product funnel. The three prongs is a StoryPress data store, a StoryPress data creation, that's another part of the product, and StoryPress uh, content strategization. Data str- we did literally just talked at length about data strategization. That's analytics, understanding what content hits, what doesn't, optimizing for your business objectives. It's a forward projecting, very, very forward projecting kind of goal. There's a data execution piece as well. And that's like, how can I literally create content faster? How can I type faster? How can I get words in an editor faster? And the answer to that is generative AI. And if StoryPress owns all your archival data, we have your article corpus of like a hundred if you're a b2b company or like a million if you're like a traditional publisher we can understand what you publish on we can attribute what hits the best we can understand what style you publish on and then we can train an llm to literally create content for you how have you been finding customers or users for the platform so far so we launched on a platform called appsumo at first and within the first two months we we had projected $50,000 $50,000 in sales. Mm-hmm. And we end up getting $200,000 in sales. Wow. Like you'd see, you'd say, you say that's a good thing. You'd right. say, you think that's a good thing, but it actually inundated our customer support. And the, when I say customer support team, what I mean is me, Kevin <laughs> and David. <laughs> so we were like, oh my God, we had so many things we had to do on the roadmap. And then suddenly we have all these customers blowing up our customer support. And it's like, it's a headache. And that's how we initially launched. And then because I come from a UX background, I'd worked at IBM IX at, in user experience. We had built a lot of product-led growth funnels into the platform. As a user workflow tool, 
there's high network effects to what we do. So that initial seed customer base of like two, 3,000 users, they were able to refer StoryPress to other people and then kind of snowball on from there. Um, another thing that we've kind of started running is paid acquisition. Um, that's kind of just a test, testing messaging to see what messaging hits. And then based off what we learn from the paid acquisition, we start running content marketing. Because content marketing is a much longer return on investment horizon, whereas advertising is super quick. You can test messaging really quick. And once you understand your messaging, you can start doing a lot of content marketing. Paid also scales quite well. Content marketing scales even better. Oh, really? (laughs) What do you mean by that? Paid acquisition, actually, it scales to a point. And then there is very much diminishing returns. Once you start spending like $500,000 a month on paid acquisition, the Pareto optimality, like there is a point at which spending on ads is not Pareto optimal. So it's not revenue optimal. Content marketing, because there's just so much to write about. There's just so many different avenues by which your readers are interested in. There's so many different ways, almost limitless ways to craft a message, get into the search index and get into where your customers are finding you that the scale is almost limitless. So content marketing is actually a lot scalable than paid acquisition once you get to the big, big boys. Are you using StoryPress right now to help build out your content marketing? Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's dog fooding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's dog fooding. It's actually like really, really important part of our product iteration process. I think if you're building a company, you should use your own product because you're going to, a lot of the times your users aren't going to report like the annoying bugs are in the product. And because we're such a hardcore software company, it's not like, um, you, I know you interviewed a dog walking company last um, week, right? Um, something like that, it's very easy to spot what the bugs in the process are because it's a very physical kind of transaction. Within software, it's a lot, lot more difficult because you have contacts like what browser are you using? How fast is your internet? What part of the world you're in? <laughs> you know, How long have you left a browser tab open for? There are just so many variables involved in software that um, at the end of the day, you need to use your own products to find those really edge case bugs. How big is the team right now? We're seven. Seven people. Yeah, seven people. And they're all engineers. I'm the only person. Even I do engineering now. So I started off this journey not knowing how to code. And now every day you can see commits on GitHub from me. (laughs) (laughs) Even I spend like 20 to 30% of my time coding. And then like 30% of the time doing like financial models. And then another 30% doing um, growth. Are they all the engineers in Taiwan? Yes, all of them are in Taiwan. What's it been like kind of working with Taiwanese engineers and group of people? Taiwanese engineers, I think they are some of the best in terms of their education. Their skill set's really, really, really deep. And there's a very strong culture of learning. And that's really great. What's been difficult in terms of scaling engineering culture in Taiwan is that everyone's very specialized. Which you mentioned in your TSMC video. (laughs) People are very, very, very specialized within what they do. And they don't like touching projects that they feel they shouldn't have responsibility over. That creates a lot of problems when you're running a startup. Because if you're a startup, literally every problem is everyone's problem. So you just can't have people who do not like touching new problems. Like when we first started hiring, we hired people from like Taida, which is like National Taiwan University, and engineers from Bian, like Binance, which is like really, really massive engineering companies, really sophisticated, really, really great engineers. And whilst they were great for like the first two, three months, what they were lacking was that cultural fit to work in a startup. They didn't have that comfort in exploring 
the unknown or yeah. like getting random jobs delegated sometimes that sometimes people just have to do. So we learned from that experience. And now the hiring metric that we now look for, it used to be most important was your skills, how hard your skills was, what your limit in terms of your kind of learning limit, your skill limit could be. And then least important was your attitude because we felt that if you had good skills, you probably had a great attitude. Now it's completely flipped now is like your attitude and how we look at attitude is like have you encountered any hardships like have you gone into anything and like just got slapped in the face um are you a big risk taker do you like taking risk do you work really well under pressure that kind of stuff and most importantly it's like passing the beer test can i go to a pub with you and then have a beer with you and can i feel like i can just like be pals so most important is personality and then second most important is your ability ceiling because we want to grab like really underpriced resources and then train them up into like really, really, really great resources. Mm -hmm. And then least important is what you currently know. And I think that's what every kind of software organization should be because software is moving so quickly that it doesn't really matter what you know currently because what you know currently is going to be outdated in a year anyways. <laughs> no, so, no, no, it's very true. I, yeah. think I, I used to recruit for a team, not in software, but right. like it's one of those things where the best people who work for you are not necessarily the ones with the best resume. Yep. And um, a lot of people, it's very lazy to go through and just pick, oh, this guy went to this school. Exactly, that exactly. School. But exactly. then you end up picking, like there's a lot, some of our best people I've hired are Exactly. Terrible. No, re no resumes. <laughs> exactly. Same, same here. It's like literally our best hire graduated from art school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And then she went to like Alpha Camp and she's been amazing. But like, I want to ask you a question because I feel like there's a really famous HBR study, Harvard Business Review study. And it says that the best lessons you learn in terms of leadership are the bosses that you hate the most. They did like a review. It's like to like every kind of like great kind of leader within an organization is like, who do you learn your biggest lessons from? It's like by far everyone said like the, the boss that I hated the most. I think you learn more from your mistakes than your successes, which kind of leads into the second question. What was the worst hire you made? <laughs> uh, that is a very good question. I hired someone who I thought was not right for the role. Right. So I was taking on two different tasks and it was decided to spin one of those tasks out. And so we were looking for someone to kind of manage this new team. Yep. Uh, the recruiting team brought to me this person who seemed qualified. When I got on the call with him, he seemed okay, stuff like that. We hired him and then he started working and then I just never heard from the guy. Not that I was supposed to, I wasn't uh, like his manager or anything, but like I just never heard from him. Very quiet, very silent. So then I fly over to America. So this was back when I used to fly to the States and um, went to the office where he was there. Just he walked in at nine, exactly on nine, and then sat down at the office and just kind of, you know, got on the computer and I watched him for the whole day. I mean, very responsive to emails, but didn't do any work. And then um, so I went back home to Taiwan and I basically said, this guy, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let this guy go. Yeah. Do you ever like ask him why he wasn't doing anything at work? I didn't need to because yeah. I was looking at a screen. Right. I mean, we talked to him a little bit and he said he just felt really overwhelmed because he was a great individual performer. But moving to a management role is so much different. And a lot of people say that. A lot of people do struggle to go from contributor to manager. I mean, it's good for both sides. Good for him too, that he knows that 
okay, you know, didn't work out this time. You didn't set the place down on fire, but like you have something that you can keep for next time. I reckon that's such an interesting segue though in terms of like managerial skills because it's actually like a little bit of personal anecdote as well. I told you about the student publication Mm -hmm. that I founded. I wasn't very social when I was younger and I was very much kept to myself. I hated like human interaction so much that I actually got my best friend to do all the managerial work for <laughs> that student publication. Yeah. And he just did it because we were best friends and we're still like really good friends today. We're still like basically best friends today. However, one day we got really drunk and then he missed a deadline. And then I got really mad at him for missing a deadline. He was like, I don't work for you. I quit. And I was like, oh, crap. Looks like I need to learn how to do Mandarin myself then. So then overnight, I was literally forced into a situation where I had to learn how to manage people and learn how to incentivize people, learn how to manage a team. And I don't think I would have been able to scale StoryPress's team if I didn't have that first crash course, kind of like making all these mistakes, it's like build a kind of... Do you structure. have like a management tool or a system or something you do that you brought over from there? I think one-on-ones. What did I bring from that? I think remote work. Back when I was like 2016 to 2017, I reckon I was like one of the first, I guess, things, a company, I don't know what to call it, to do remote work. So we learned how to do remote work really effectively. What else? Uh, collaboration tools. So using things like Google Docs, using things like Notion, understanding that you need to structure your mind really, really well before you go into a meeting and then keeping meetings as limited as possible Mm. because everyone hates remote work meetings. Yeah. So if you can keep that as short as possible, imposing a time limit, being like, we only have 15 minutes to go through what's an important issue. If we go past or if I feel like you're wasting time, scrap this, let's do it another time. So we have a very hard limit. If I go into a meeting and anyone in the meeting is like unprepared without an agenda, within the first like five minutes, you can tell. And then you just go, this is wasting time. Why are we doing this? Nothing's been prepared. Let's reschedule this like tomorrow. And then just move things a lot faster. I think as a manager, you need to have a very high tolerance for social discomfort. Like saying, making the awkward conversations. Do you feel like sometimes that you have to walk that line between being your cohort, your, your um, subordinates' friends and also being a manager of them? Yes. That is a very, very difficult line to um, walk. Why is that the case? It's because a lot of the times encouraging personal growth requires you to be a good friend. However, business objectives sometimes can't move just because you're experiencing a personal issue. I'll I'll give you a really good example of this, actually. We had a member of the team who acted as a leader. He was managing another small team and he suffered with extreme um, anxiety over his social interactions, like extreme, extreme anxiety. He didn't know how to kind of cope with it. When I was like 18 or 19, one of the best decisions I'd ever made was go to therapy. Like amazing. So what I learned from that also is how to be a good therapist. So I'd spend like maybe like an hour, two hours every day. Well, not every day, every week, kind of like walking him through being like, hey, what do you feel? What blah, 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 like that kind of stuff. Tell me what you feel. Why is that? But then you realize that as a CEO, there's still going to be a level where your team's not going to tell you everything that they want to tell you. So that objective shifted from me being a therapist to how can I get someone who grew up in Taiwan to accept going to a therapist, which is actually even harder, I reckon. Yeah, because Taiwan, um, a lot of Taiwanese, the culture is very not mental health friendly. 
Whereas when I went to law school in Australia, literally the first day at law school, everyone had to attend a session about how lawyers are most depressed. Everyone in, <laughs> who studies law is like 80% of lawyers are depressed. It's like lawyers is like some of the like highest suicide rates in the world or something. It's like just a very depressing job. Really yeah. great. Yeah. great. Exactly. Recruiting. Amazing, amazing. And um, <laughs> it was a very step change in Australia where, where mental health is just so openly talked about. And in Taiwan, mental health is almost shunned. You don't tell your friends you're going to a therapist. You don't tell your friends you're feeling depressed. And telling someone that you're doing that almost is like a sign of weakness. So that objective there was how do I convince him that he shouldn't be ashamed of his mental health and that I will support him no matter what happens. I won't look down on him for seeking help. And that involved me telling my story about how I went to therapy. I was super useful and asking friends who their therapists were and finding a good therapist for him. And then he went to therapy. The company funded his therapy for like three, four months. And then now he's one of our highest performers. Sometimes, uh, yeah, it is very, very difficult to kind of walk that line between kind of like a boss and a friend. But I think the key to that is setting very clear boundaries and yeah. setting very, very clear expectations. Like, yes, I'll be your friend, but it's being very explicit about what those expectations of that friendship are and what happens yeah. if these expectations are broached. Yeah, because you still have to do the job. I've seen many time situations where Someone in a company is kept because they're just they're just good pals with someone. Oh yeah, yeah, great personality, <laughs> yeah. really great. But like, you know, just you love hanging out with them. Mm. But then at the same time, you're like, this guy's not performing. I'll tell you another funny story. When we first started hiring, I'd hire my co-founders' friends, and I really don't like nepotism. I think nepotism is one of like the biggest drivers of inefficiency. Why do I say that? Because I used to work at an unnamed big corporation, which I may or may not have mentioned at the start of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what it was. There was a lot of nepotism there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Again, it goes back to like the lessons you learn about organization and building, the mistakes that you experience working at another company, things that you hate at that yeah. end. And this was what I hated at that company, the amount of nepotism, amount of political nature. Now, imagine I'm going to my company with that mindset, and we're also hiring the friends of my co-founders. I remember hiring in one employee, and I was very anxious that he wouldn't perform, and he he would rely on his friendship with the co-founders. And I remember in the first, second, or third weekend, I was like very clear to him. I was like, hey, man, I know you're really good friends with one of the co-founders, but if you don't meet expectations, I will personally ensure that you leave the company. <laughs> <laughs> and then from then on, he's been like one of our top performers. Well, that's great. Yes. I don't know. It's just that I think being a manager, you have a like very high tolerance for making people uncomfortable. And it's just the nature of the job. I think, I think one of my favorite CEOs is like um, CEO Snowflake. I forgot his name. You know something, Strutman? I know the company. I don't know who the- Snowflake. Uh, I yeah, know yeah. the company, but I don't know who's the- uh, He has a lot of great talks talking about like just bringing up like hard conversations and just setting what the standards are, setting what the expectations are. Because a lot of that is like cultural as well. Once you have like a culture in place, once you understand what the cultures are, a lot of the times you don't need to explicitly communicate them anymore. How would you describe StoryPress's culture? A lack of fear of making mistakes is what we explain our culture to be. Never be afraid of making mistakes. Um, If you make mistakes, sometimes we'll even congratulate you on taking that risk, even if it falls flat on its face. All you need to do is make the mistake. If it fails, acknowledge it really quickly. And then most important thing is come up with a plan 
on how to avoid that mistake going into the future. What did we learn as an organization going through that mistake? We learned nothing. Why the hell did we even make that mistake for? Right, right, right. <laughs> so the first of which is like mistake tolerance. The second of which is collective responsibility. Everyone is collectively responsible for another piece. And why is that the case? It's because engineering teams in Taiwan, I mentioned prior, are very siloed. It's very difficult to get engineers to collaborate especially remote, especially with that Taiwanese team as well. So it's encouraging collaboration between teams, encouraging communication between teams. We've actually got a long list, but these are like the two core things I think that make story for us. Intain amount of risk taking and lots of collaboration when things blow up. How's been kind of trying to get remote work to work in Taiwan? Because they're not used to it. First of all, it depends on cultural selection, who you hire in. For example, some people just don't like remote work and we don't hire them. It's that simple. You self-select yourself out of your hiring funnel. Why did we decide to do that? It's because our very first hire, we made a mistake. She was like the worst hire we've ever made. Basically, I didn't know what I was doing hiring. And then she was like, I need a office space. And I was like, okay. Gave her like an $8,000 a month subsidy to like really nice WeWork or whatever. And then she was just terrible. And then I realized it's like office spaces don't really increase your productivity. We want to have a firm stance, not going to have any office spaces. So first off, don't hire people who do require an office space. Just don't hire them. Secondly is a lot of communication, a lot of video communication, a lot of stand-ups. So whenever you have a problem, try to use video to communicate. And then you have that in-person facial communication. And thirdly is monthly team catch-ups mm-hmm. where we all like ride down to like Taichung, Taoyuan, Taipei and just chill and do like escape rooms together and just hang out and be pals. You talk a lot about like video, right? Yeah. So you're not a fan of the okay, the guy gets on the call and then he has his camera off or something. Like you want no, to see them. No. I get really pissed off if you turn your camera off. If you turn your camera off, I'll ask, I'll like stop the meeting and I'll be like, "Why are you turning your video off?" And then they turn it back on. I think visual communication over the face is so much more expressive and so much more indicative how to construct a good kind of meeting than what you're saying. If I just wanted to hear what you're saying, a more efficient way of communication would just be writing it down. Like, why do I even need to, like, look at your face? Just write it down and I'm going to consume it even quicker. I don't need to waste, like, two minutes of my time listening to you explain something in a really bad way. The only reason I'm listening to you is because I can see your face. I can see how you're communicating through that. I can see how enthusiastic you are, how confused you are, how confident you are in what you're saying. All of these indicators you can only see via video. And then through that, you can try and drive the conversation forward. So right now... Are you only hiring engineers in Taiwan? Are you looking to hire anywhere else? We're hiring product people. So we're hiring designers and we're hiring more engineers. Hiring product, engineers and growth. So we're hiring everyone, basically. It's just that we're taking hiring pretty slow because we made the mistake like two years ago. We just hired too quickly. And hiring people just massive pain in the ass. We make the (laughs) wrong hire. So hiring pretty slow. But in terms of priority, I say product passes, the number one priority. Um, growth person, number second, and then engineering is the last one. Do you worry about like integrating different time zones or going across different time zones? It's like, because product people usually might have to be closer to the user, right? Well, 45% of our users are in the US and I'm hardly ever in the US. (laughs) So product people, they need to be okay with sometimes taking meetings at like 10 p.m. at night is effectively what's required sometimes. And if that person's me, then it has to be me. So yeah, I am worried and it's just something we're figuring out. (laughs) We'll see if any product person wants to work those weird hours and then maybe like take a day off. That was one of the issues I experienced before. 
like the time zones from Taiwan to the U.S. are a bit challenging. But the requirement to do qualitative kind of user interviews, I'd say maybe ten years ago, composed like ninety percent of your product mix. Now, I think if you've got a very good engineering team, that can comprise maybe ten percent. Because you have such good tools these days to kind of observe what your users are doing and really understand how they do that via software tools as opposed to by interviewing them. Yeah, I guess like the thing that always challenged me is like, okay, it's good that you know you can find the answer, but what's the question? Exactly. What's the right question? Exactly. I think the right question to ask a lot of that depends on the data. For example. Um, looking at the data, chopping up our cohorts within our CDP, and、uh, one of the biggest issues that we kind of encountered was our activation funnel wasn't great. And then you can kind of proceed from there. Why aren't you activating? Watch screen recordings of people kind of like using the platform, and then you can kind of distill from that why users aren't activating. But even things like activation, it's like it's very difficult to understand why a user isn't activating via a qualitative survey. Because if a user isn't activating, they're not going to take an interview with you. But as is with a lot of UX interviews, the answer they provide often isn't that useful for answering the question because they'll give you like a very surface level question. It'll be like,、um, "You don't have feature X," and it's like, "Okay, then why didn't you even at least create an article?" Clearly, the reason they're giving you as to why they didn't activate isn't because you don't have feature X. It's because there's something broken in that activation funnel. Just curious, do you guys really start from like top down, like from you hit the manager, the CEO, or the CTO, or the Content officer, or do you start from the ground up? As in, how decisions are made, or like how to have the platform adopted to a certain organization from top down. Like we sell to the CTO, we sell to the CEO, we sell to the business owner, and then we see if you have business owner buy-in, then they eventually invite their entire team across. At the end of the day, it's a workflow platform. Like whose time do we save the most? We save the manager's time. Although there is a lot of value prop for the team members, the biggest value prop is going to come from whatever manager is managing the team. What do you see happening next for service? Like, what's like your number one, two, three priorities right now? Number one, scale, recurring revenue acquisition, so product-led growth, paid acquisition, and content marketing. And secondly, activation. Our activation is already like pretty decent, but we want to get it industry leading, and we want to get activation rate at least forty percent. Our churn rate in terms of activated users is already basically like negligible; it's almost zero. Once you're activated, you're going to be using the platform the rest of your life, effectively. So, activation. Recurring revenue, and yeah, that's it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Pleasure. It really, it was really fun. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> yeah, pleasure. And、um, anything you want to pitch before we go? Um, yeah, give me money. <laughs> any, <laughs> any investors listening? You know, we're actively fundraising. If you're in the US, let me know. I'll send you my pitch deck. What are the terms? You know, five hundred billion dollar valuation. You know, <laughs> no cap. Just give me free money. Thank you. No, I'm just kidding. We are fundraising though. So yeah, hit me up, Alex at StoryPress dot com. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much. Baby.